Hey there, Duke fans. This is Jason Evans. Welcome to the latest episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Oh boy, we got some big news for you. Just just a few hours ago, we found out that the Blue Devils roster is not yet complete. Duke is adding Jacob Grandison, a transfer from Illinois. It is very big news, and we have to talk about it. I am here with Donald and Sam. Okay, actually, I'm not. Donald and Sam could not make it. They are both traveling right now and are not going to be able to join me on this podcast right now. I don't blame them. It's the summertime. we got to take a break at some point. And these guys are doing some really exciting, fun stuff. And we'll tell you about it on the next podcast. We're going to be doing a long, deep dive into what Jacob Grandison means for the Duke Blue Devils of next season when Donald and Sam get back in town in a couple days. I will do just a quick, just I want to give you a little bit of stuff on it. Um, he, he is a 6'6 wing. Like I said, he played for Illinois last year. He averaged 9.6 points per game, 3.8 rebounds per game. The thing you're going to love is this is a guy who shot 41%. 41% on his three-pointers, and he took a lot of threes. He attempted more than four-and-a-half three-pointers per game. This is someone whose job in the Illinois offense was to catch three-pointers and make the shot, and he excels. He is a knockdown shooter in the catch-and-shoot. He's not someone who's going to create a shot for himself. He's not going to you know, take stuff off the dribble, take step-back threes the way we saw A.J. Griffin doing. He's a different kind of three-point shooter. He's a catch-and-shoot guy. He roams around the perimeter. He runs off screens, and he waits for you to lose track of him so he can bury you from deep. And he is a two-way player. On defense, he's going to get uh, – he's not going to get a ton of steals. He's not going to get a ton of blocked shots, but he's going to make the smart play. He knows how to position himself. He won't be caught napping. He is considered to be a very, very good defender. The thing about Jacob Grandison is this guy is a sixth-year college basketball player. He's been around college basketball for a long time. He was born in April of 1998. He is exactly one month younger than Jason Tatum. I'm going to repeat that. Duke just added a player who's essentially the same age as Jason Tatum. And he joins Kale Catchings and Ryan Young as super experienced players, guys who've been in college basketball for four-plus seasons who can educate this young team about what it takes to succeed at the highest level. Because especially in Jacob Grandison. We're talking about a guy who has succeeded at the highest level. He was a starter last year for Illinois. Illinois was a very, very good ball club last season, and he was a key part of their team at both ends of the floor. It is highly possible, I think, that at least at the beginning of the year, Jacob Grandison will be starting on the wing for the Duke Blue Devils. Tyrese Proctor is still waiting on his paperwork, his visas and things like that before he gets to the United States. He may not arrive Hopefully it'll be July, but he may not arrive until August. That's entirely possible. And as a result, I think that at least early in the year, you're going to see Jacob Grandison as, the, as a starter on the wing for the Blue Devils. I think it probably means that Derek Whitehead moves over to shooting guard. Um, but if that is what Duke does, they're going to be starting a monster lineup. It is going to, Because Grandison's 6'6", Whitehead's is 6'7", 6'8", and then you get these guys who are, you know, pushing seven feet in the post. Jeremy Roach will be the only player, only starter for Duke, who's shorter than 6'6". All right. I've given you some stuff there on Jacob Grandison. We're going to have a lot more on this in coming days. And like I said, I apologize that Donald and Sam couldn't join me at this moment. But I want to now get you to what we had originally planned for this episode. A few days ago, we sat down with Jay Billis to talk about the NBA draft. Our first episode a couple days ago was about Paulo Bancaro. And as we move down the line of the Dukies in the draft, we are now going to talk to Jay 
about A.J. Griffin. The rest of this episode, everything else you're going to hear after this, was recorded a couple days ago. Hey, you know what? That's how we got to do it here sometimes. But I know you will enjoy it. There's some fun stuff still to come, including a really cool viewer, uh, sorry, listener email that we're going to answer at the end of the podcast, which I think we'll have all of you talking, see if you agree or disagree with our answers to it. But let's get it started with Jay Billis. Here is Sam Klein leading the conversation as we talk to the Duke legend, the ESPN draft analyst, Jay Billis, about A.J. Griffin. All right, we are back with Jay Billis. He is here again to talk NBA draft with us. Last time we were discussing Paulo Bancaro. Jay, welcome back today. We're going to dive into AJ Griffin. Of course, he was Duke's starting small forward by the end of last season, dealt with the injuries at the beginning of last year and was really a revelation for Duke behind the three-point line. He is uh, projected to be a top 10 pick, but give me your sort of initial thoughts on A.J. Griffin's draft position and what he's done either to help or hurt himself during this pre-draft process. He's done nothing to hurt himself. He's only helped himself. Uh, the first thing you think of with A.J. Griffin is he can really shoot it. Uh, he shot 46% from three. He had some uh, huge games. I mean, obviously that game in the Smith Center against North Carolina where 27, uh, he can really shoot it. He's got a great shot fake. He can uh, stretch it gets it off quickly. He's really got long arms and a, a good release and high release on his shot. And I think he's got the potential to be a, a very good defender um, in the NBA. He's a good defender at Duke. And, you know, he, as you guys know, he had um, some injury problems in high school where he wasn't able to play maybe his last year or so. I can't remember what Coach K had said. You know, it had been 18 months or something since he had really played. And so you saw uh, uh, a really quick rise and progression from, from Griffin throughout the course of the season. You know, he had some great games. He had some where he was not so great. Maybe, you know, he'd go in, you know, you have a game where he had six points or whatever, but, but he's, he's legit and, and he, can, he can really shoot it. And there, there are only a few guys in this draft that we're talking about in the, in the top 20 that put up the shooting numbers that he did. Uh, you know, 46% from three is, is no joke with uh, the number of reps that he had. And, uh, you know, guys like Jabari Smith are up there uh, that can really shoot it. And, uh, but he's, he's chief among them. There's nobody, there's nobody in the, the first, you know, first half of this draft that shot it as consistently and as well uh, over the course of the season as A.J. Griffin did. You talked a lot about the shot, of course. And one of the things I think we noticed this season is that he has a bit of an unconventional approach to the three-point shot. His feet are set a little wider, I think, that you traditionally see. And he doesn't have the quickest release, even though he's pretty accurate. Are either of those concerns about his ability to translate that skill to the NBA? That'll improve. Um, you know, his, his, his shot, getting it off quickly, uh, you know, th those things will all be refined and, and improve. Uh, you know, you shoot it to that level, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to become a, a, a worse shooter as you go on. He'll, he'll only get better. Uh, you know, you're not going to, you're not counting on anybody to shoot 46% in the NBA uh, consistently over time. There are only a handful of guys that in the history of the game do that, but he, he's, a, he's incredibly capable. So I don't, I don't see how he's, he's going to get anything but better as he goes forward. And at, you know, in the top 10, 
Um, you know, he's a little bit further down the line than a guy like Paolo Mancaro, but if he goes seven, eight, nine, whatever it is, you're not necessarily looking for a guy at that range that is going to be, uh, your best player, but he's going to be a starter in the league for a long time. And I think he's going to do really well. On the defensive end. I think the thing that was most intriguing to me coming into the season was just how mature his body was. Uh, he in, in the in the preseason photo for Duke basketball, AJ Griffin's not the tallest guy, but he looks like the most physically mature guy on the team. That being said, it's not like he's six ten with that body. He's six six, and that might even be pushing it. What do you think about the way that his size translates, particularly on the defensive end? Well, I mean, he's not the tallest guy, but he's lengthy, and that's what really counts. Is he's got a you know he's got a wide wide wingspan and you know great frame. Uh, he's not a uh, what an NBA you know spectacular athlete, but he's he's athletic. Um, so he he's a really good prospect, and I think defensively he's very good. He's not a pick and roll specialist. He's you know they don't uh, Duke didn't put him in a lot of pick and roll situations where he was the pick and roll handler. Um, so I think he can certainly make a jump there uh, as he goes forward. But he's got the skill set to be to be really, really good and really effective long term. The NBA, he can he can stretch you and he drives it. He's a really good cutter. Uh, you know, he moves pretty well off the ball and he cuts very effectively. Uh, and I think in the NBA, with the way they stretch the floor and use the floor, I mean, you know, people forget the, the floor is 50 feet wide. It's, it's in the half court. It's wider than it is long. And when you watch NBA games, they use the floor much more efficiently than you see in the college game. So he'll, he'll actually have more space in the NBA uh, than he had in college to, uh, uh, to move and cut. And he's, he's very effective there. You mentioned his lack of ball handling on the perimeter and, and, and not sort of being in that position in the pick and roll. Are there any other deficiencies or, or things that he's trying to work on during this pre-draft process or, or going into his first season that, you know, fans should be giving him some slack for not having as he, uh, as he starts his NBA career? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I know he's, he's been working out and working on his, his ball handling, uh, and, uh, being more of a handler, uh, that wasn't what he was required to do at Duke, but that doesn't mean he can't do it. Um, you know, just because you're used a certain way, it doesn't mean that, that, that you can't do it and he's, he's capable. So he's one of those guys that I think we could look back in this draft and say, why he, why was he taken at 10 when he should have been taken at four or five, whatever, uh, or two, I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll see in the long run, but he's really capable. And, uh, and that shooting piece is a, is a big deal. You know, when you can shoot it in the NBA, you can play for a long time. He can shoot it. What are the concerns around his injury history? If any, I don't know that, you know, those are, are, decisions that franchises make in consultation with their doctors. So after the medical comes back, I don't have access to these medical reports. So what you hear are mostly rumors. And I don't, I don't trust what I hear uh, coming up to the draft because there, there is a lot of, you don't want to say, you know, as some guys will say, well, you know, coming up to the draft, some guys in my position will say, well, this is lying season. Uh, I don't go quite that far, but there is some disinformation out there where you'll, you'll hear something about a player and go, is, was that put out, you know, kind of so that uh, he drops down a little bit to somebody else. Uh, those things do happen. Um, 
where you hear something and it turns out not to be a concern. Um, you know, you, you've heard it over the years with regard to different players, but, but I don't, you know, I don't have access to those medical reports. And uh, so I wind up sticking with, with what I see more than, than what I hear. We didn't talk about this much with Paulo, despite the fact that he's, he comes from a, a bit of a strong athletic pedigree. So does AJ Griffin though. How much do factors like that, which are not necessarily on the court factors, but, but off the court, uh, sort of in, in the bloodlines, how much does that play a role in NBA teams' uh, desire to draft a guy like A.J. Griffin? I think it's only helpful. There, there are times when a player will say, or when a, player, when a team will say, uh, hey, this guy came out of this system. He's been well-trained. Um, uh, he gets it, you know, stuff like that. There, there are, uh, and certainly, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, his father played and, and, uh, and he's been, he's been well coached throughout the course of his, uh, his basketball life. And, uh, th- those are, are positives, uh, positive check marks in his, um, his favor. Uh, I don't know that they're dispositive of the issue, you know, that, that somehow if your dad didn't play in the NBA or something, you know, you're further down the list, but, but it, it, it only helps. Are there any systems, coaches, uh, NBA programs that you think better suit AJ Griffin's skill set? Or it sounds like what you were describing is that he kind of fits the modern NBA well enough that he might be able to plug in on most teams and be a rotation player from you know from his rookie season. Yeah, you know, and he could be. He's he's going to be more than that uh, if he stays healthy. Um, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to look at this from prospect rather than fit because he could, he could go seven, he could go 11, who knows. Um, but he's going to be coveted because of his skill set and the fact that he can, he can really shoot the ball. All right. Well, uh, we're looking forward to seeing where AJ Griffin goes. Jay Billis, thanks again for, uh, for chatting with us about some of these Duke prospects. And I'm sure we'll have you on again soon to, uh, to talk more about, about more of the guys. Looking forward to it. Thank you. All right, so once again, we thank Jay so much for joining AJ, by the way, deep tease, Jay will be back with us on future episodes. <laughs> we'll be talking about additional Dukies in the NBA draft. Probably going to have Mark Williams and uh, Jay talking about Mark Williams coming up next. But before we get to that, we need to react a little bit to what Jay said and give our own assessment of uh, AJ Griffin as an NBA draft prospect. Sam, I'll come to you first. What did you, what, you know, what was your biggest takeaway from Jay's comments? I think the the thing we led off with was AJ shooting. That to me was the biggest revelation about him going into or or through the season. We knew that he was athletic. We knew that he was strong coming into the year. We you can just look at his you know at, at his shape and you can tell that uh, the guy is ready to compete athletically. But the the shooting was what really stood out, and I uh, I felt really good about about Jay's assessment of. AJ shooting in the way that it translates to the NBA. You know, my concern, as I mentioned, is when you watch his shot, it doesn't look like a lot of NBA guys' shots. Uh, he starts a little flat-footed. He's his, his legs are a little spread out. Uh, his shots a little bit slower, I think, than you want from an elite NBA shooter. But to Jay's point, all of those are things that he's going to improve on, and he has such a solid foundation that the shooting should be a an elite skill for him going forward. Does that mean he's going to be one of the very best shooters of all time? I don't know, but it'll at least make him, you know, really playable 
and potentially a, a starter pretty early in his career. I think when it comes to AJ, I think the best part about him is that he can create his shot, not just from a set position, but off the dribble uh, or just be able to create room to get his shot off. I think that was what made him so dynamite for Duke last year is that he was able to find a myriad of ways to get the shot off, even though it may have been slower uh, than average. But I do think that once he's able to kind of, you know, get that shot released a little bit quicker, he's going to be that much more effective, especially the fact that he can create kind of a step back uh, or step to the side three that is so uh, common in the NBA. He's going to be able to create a lot of space for himself. And then once he hits that three, as you mentioned, he's able to get to the rack. He's able to be athletic and, and also a little bit creative inside the paint. I think the, the wide body stance of his shot, that might be tinkered with just a bit. But I mean, for me, I'm always of the, of the position that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And his shot is definitely not broke. So uh, I think he's going to be great if he can find a situation where he's able to not only create uh, from the wing or, or take set shots, but also be able to find his rhythm through runners and through, you know, just being able to go off the dribble to kind of fool some people into thinking that he's going to the basket and then stepping back and hitting that three that we love. You know, the thing about AJ Griffin that struck whole season was he, I feel like he deferred too much. Uh, every so often we would see this guy take the ball to the basket, take the ball in the lane and, and do some really impressive stuff. And, and when you look at his body, you're just like, you know, wow, this guy, <laughs> this guy is sculpted. He looks like the son of an NBA player. I, I don't know why he didn't do it more often. And I guess, you know, one of the things I would hesitate a little bit, you know, in terms of where I, I might draft him, because most folks are projecting him to go in the top 10, uh, you know, perhaps as early as like five or six. I've, I've, there are people out there who think he may go like five or six. I, I just wonder, I think to me, if he becomes a guy who uses that athleticism, that body to take the ball to the basket more then yeah, man, I'm taking him. I, I'm, I'm happy taking him around the top. But if he's just going to be an outside shooter, um, just a three and D guy, those are really valuable, but I, I'm not sure you're getting what you need off of him. If you're taking him that high. And that sort of leads me to my question for you guys, which is let's play our little over under game. I'm saying 7.5. Is AJ a top seven pick or does he go outside the top seven? And I'm not asking where you would take him. I'm asking where you think he goes on draft day. Donald, I'll come to you first. Do you think AJ goes top seven or outside the top seven? Uh, this is probably the one that I'm going to have the most difficulty with because uh, my Detroit Pistons are sitting at five. They have considered AJ Griffin with that fifth pick, but I think they've been leaning uh, towards other guys in recent days. So I, I think he's going to I think he's going to be right at seven. I, I think right now you have Portland at seven. I think if they they're going to be going through some offseason changes, but I think he could slide in right there as a shooter uh, to compliment. They just I mean, they just traded CJ McCollum during the season, so they're going to need another guard that's going to be able to shoot the three uh, next to Dame Lillard if they're going to you know try and keep him around. I think he can slot in pretty well there. So I'm going to go seven, which I guess is what, what I don't know if that's over under under seven and a half. Um, I think he goes right at seven. Sam, how about you? I think I've got him just behind seven and a half, sort of similar to the conversation we had the other day about Paulo Bancaro. 
you it's not that there's no like upside there's there's tons of upside with aj griffin i think you know what the upside looks like though and when it comes to i think jason you made this point about how nba teams are looking for all this potential there's there's things that guys can turn into um aj griffin is sort of more known as to what his skill set is and the type of player he's going to be in the nba and so you'll find a gm or two that'll say you know fine like i mean great player uh lots of skills but but is not sort of making you starry-eyed the way that some of the other prospects, you know, you look at a guy like Shaden Sharp, um, that's, that's sort of like the, the drafting on, on potential things. So in the same way that Paulo Bencaro, we think is going to fall to three, but still very much could end up as the rookie of the year. Uh, AJ Griffin could very much, you know, I think fall to eight or nine and still end up on the first team all rookie, just because I think that, that he's going to translate so well. So I, I'm, you know, I picked a, I picked this 7.5 number because it's a difficult one. I'm also going to go uh, over, which I guess means he goes the seventh pick. I'm not saying that I think that's the smartest move, but, but I think that teams are going to, there's going to be some hesitation, especially, especially on the speed of AJ's shot. Uh, uh, his release is not super quick at the, uh, you know, for, for an NBA player and and I, I I wonder a little bit I think teams may be a little bit hesitant there that said I think that if I was drafting if I was actually a G and he was still on the board at number seven I'd probably be all over him I think people forget how young AJ is he, he's still he's very young for this class he'll be one of the youngest guys in this draft and the the growth potential with that body and and to continue to improve that shot is is really tempting and really valuable at the NBA uh, Jason, a bit to, uh, a bit of foreshadowing for our next episode or the next guy that we're going to talk about in the next episode. I think if AJ Griffin is outside of the top seven, it's because Mark Williams has shooting shot up so much that he kind of overtakes him in that top seven. And that, my friends, is a tease. Nice job, Donald. Yes, we'll be talking about Mark Williams on upcoming podcasts. That's going to wrap it for our conversation about AJ Griffin. When we come back from the break, the best Duke games to watch. Are you a diehard Duke fan that hasn't doesn't have enough of the Duke history in your blood? We are going to tell you which games you need to watch from Duke's history to be the perfect Duke fan. That answer coming up. All right, Duke fans, welcome back. And we're going to get to an interesting viewer question now, uh, something that we got sent by uh, Melissa Bauer just a few days ago that, you know, we looked at it, we were like, you know what, that's that's kind of a cool thing to discuss because not everyone who listens to the DBR podcast is a Duke historian. So Melissa said she became a Duke fan in 2013. And, you know, the past 10 years as a fan has been amazing. But as she listens to the podcast, and she is a loyal listener, and thank you, Melissa, for tuning in, she notices that there are all kinds of things that get referenced that are outside of you know, the scope of her fandom. And so she said, look, it's a slower part of the college basketball year. Can you guys pick for me five games from before my time that I should go back and watch? And I love this question because we're not going to give you five games, Melissa. We're probably going to give you way more than that because each one of us 
Donald, Sam, and I are each going to give you our five games you need to go back and watch. And the only criteria, gentlemen, is that must be prior to 2013, because that's when Melissa started becoming a Duke fan. So outside of the past decade, because I will say, if I was allowed to include the past decade, the Duke versus Kentucky game, um, uh, again, you know, when when Zion and RJ. In, yeah, 2019. 2018, inter- yeah. 2018, when they introduced themselves to the world, would definitely be on my list of the five games to watch. Uh, and and I was actually thinking like the, the Louisville game that year when they came back the huge comeback in the second half that might be on my list as well but those don't and and certainly something during the national championship year but none of those nothing before 2013 i want to hear your list donald i will go to you first give me your list of the five games okay so my five games are this obviously i'm going to go with probably my favorite game of all time gone in 54 seconds that's duke versus maryland uh, in the regular season uh, on the road in 2001 uh, the next one. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to immediately push back. Gone in 54 seconds. Wait, wait, wait. This is my list. This is my list, not your list. I, I'm commenting on it. Dude, I'm hosting. Dude, I, I'm allowed <laughs> to do this. That game, uh, there, there is an amazing final minute, and there is a great overtime. The first 39 minutes of that game is like torture. Duke plays terrible. It is not fun. <laughs> I... I- there is a reason why I have that game as a five favorite game of all time because it, it underestimates, it, it tells you the heart of a champion is present no matter what time of the game it is. And if you need 54 seconds to do it at the end of the game and overtime, which is the greatest overtime that's ever been played, then you can do it. Now I go to the greatest game of all time, Duke versus Kentucky, 1992. Duh. All right, next one. This is an interesting one for me because I think it sets up what a champion program looks like. And sometimes you need to experience pain to get to that level. And that's Duke versus Louisville 1986 final. It's, I, I, even though we lost that game, I think it sets up an entire three decades of Duke basketball where everything is great. Now let's go to the fun one. Duke versus UNC 2010, 8250. Need I say more? And then finally, this is the interesting one for me. Duke versus Maryland in 1999 at home in Cameron. Why that game? Shane Battier's breakout game, 27 points, and he be, goes on to be, in my mind, one of the greatest players in college basketball history. I love it. All right, Sam. You're t- and by the way, when we get to my list, there will be some overlap there with Donald. But go, but go ahead, Sam. Your turn for your five. Yeah, let me, uh, let me repeat a couple of Donald's for, to, just to be boring. Uh, the 1992 Elite Eight game, Christian Leitner, uh, probably – the, like the most famous game, the most famous shot in Duke history. So you got to have the 92. No, 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 not, not in Duke history, in college basketball history. In college basketball history. What, what, what have you? Uh, so the 1992 uh, Elite Eight game that, that Jason was at, uh, right? Jason, Jason was at that game. So he, he'd like to remind you a few times. Uh, Donald wanted you to watch the 1986 loss uh, to, to Louisville in the national championship game. I agree that it's good to have a bit of humility in this list, um, but I think it's tough to watch basketball from 1986. So why don't you instead, if you want that little bit of pain, watch the 1999 national championship game uh, against Connecticut. That's a, uh, it's a, it's a tough one to swallow, but I think it'll, you know, it'll, it'll put you in the mood for, for comeback and it'll really get you hating on UConn, which is a thing we don't do very much anymore. We don't get a chance to do that often. Exactly. Donald wanted you to watch the gone in 54 seconds game 
the game at Coalfield House in 2001. Let me offer a different Duke Maryland game from the same season, the Final Four game, where Duke came back uh, from 22 down at halftime to beat Maryland in the second half to then proceed to the national championship game where they beat Arizona for their third national championship. I think that that 2001 comeback against Maryland is uh, is the one to watch. Another one that Duke fans will will reference often lovingly, despite the fact that the season didn't end as well as I think we would have hoped, is the 2005, late 2005, uh, number one versus number two game where Duke took on Texas and JJ Redick probably had his most fantastic performance in a Duke uniform. There have been a number of, of Duke games during the regular season that have been way, way hyped for, for how awesome they were gonna be. That game at the beginning of the 2006 season was, was the JJ Redick is definitely on track to be national player of the year. Of course, he split the national player of the year award that season with Adam Morrison of Gonzaga. And it was a whole cool back and forth thing that they had throughout that year. But the, the Texas game was, uh, was the one to remember. Donald offered you, finally, I'm, I'm mirroring him a little bit here. Uh, Donald offered you the 2010 UNC beatdown, which I was in attendance for 82 to 50. Uh, I will I will offer instead, perhaps uh, maybe a slightly different flavor, but also of the comeback variety, similar to the 2001 Final Four. I'll give you the 2011 Duke versus Carolina game in Cameron, which I was also in attendance for, and that was my that was my senior year. Kyrie Irving, of course, was out with a toe injury. Nolan Smith and Seth Curry keyed a huge comeback against Carolina. Duke was down by double digits at halftime and then pulled away at the end. So, in summary, I've got the 92 Final Four. I've got the 99 national championship game. I've got 2001 um, final four. I've got the 2005 preseason game or early season game. And I've got the 2011 home game against Carolina. Sam, I think it's great that you mentioned the other really good game against Maryland in the 2001 season. But I, I mean, first of all, this is not an ex ex exclusive list. There are way more games than the three of us will ever have, even though we kind of overlap. But honestly, Go back and watch all four of those Duke versus Maryland games in 2001 because you had the gone in 54. You had the final four game. You had the Nate James tip in in the ACC tournament. And yes, I think the most important one of the most important games of that year was the loss to Maryland in Cameron where Boozer broke his foot. And, and then the famous it's over uh, in, in the DBR forum lore uh, led us to basically kind of revamp and get to the national championship and win it. So uh, yeah, I, I think you take the good with the bad, but those four games stand up as one of the, you know, in one season, you know, two of the, you know, four of the best games that Duke has ever had or even played in. Watch all four of them. But I think the great thing about Sam and I's list and, and now Jason's, we will have some overlap, but we also have games that, you know, none of us have mentioned because there's so many out there. Can I add one more game that I thought was really intriguing that would be uh, sort of an interesting, uh, interesting lens into the program? was the UNC game in 2010, the at Carolina game, which was the Brian Zubek breakout game. If you want sort of a, a turnaround moment, if, if you're gonna reference the, the 2001 Maryland game where, where Bruiser, Boozer breaks his foot, uh, the Zubek game, I think is, a, is another great example of inflection points in the season that led to national championships. All right, so this is totally unfair. By going third, you guys have named almost every game that I had. Did you have so the Zubek game? Uh, so yes and no. I'll explain in just a moment. <laughs> so so my list starts with 
1992, Duke versus Kentucky. Of course, it starts with that game. Duh. If you have, if you are a Duke fan and you have not watched Duke versus Kentucky in 1992, I don't know what you're doing. I have it on DVD if you want it, because I would love to not own any more DVDs. So, you know, <laughs> if you, if you, if you want to, if you want to pay me for uh, shipping and handling, you know, maybe I'll send you my copy of the 90s. What are you, a Columbia house now? I, I watched it. I would watch it in college. I bought it from the, from the Duke store when I was in school. And sometimes my roommate and I would get really pumped up for games by watching the 1992 uh, Elite Eight game. Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Uh, so uh, my next one is, and you guys did not mention this, I have to go back to 1986, the team that, the team that started Coach K on his legendary you know, run of Final Fours and, and launched Coach K and the Duke program into the national stratosphere. I, the game I picked that I think you should watch from that year is the national semifinal versus Kansas. Duke loses 71 to 67. I could easily understand someone saying that you need to endure the pain of the next game, the game against Louisville, where Duke loses in the national championship. That, that game is too, still too painful. For, like I literally, I still have not watched rewatched that game. But that national semifinal against Kansas, Johnny Dawkins got 24 points. Duke wins the game at the very end with Danny Ferry picking the ball up. And, and Coach K in the post-game news conference, they said, why'd you put in Danny? Because Danny was just a freshman. And back then, freshman didn't play. And Coach K took out Jay Billis to put in Danny Ferry. And, and the reporter said, why'd you put in Danny Ferry? And Coach K said, I said, Danny, go in there and pick the ball up off the floor and put it in the basket, <laughs> which is a, a great answer by Coach K. I will say that alternately, the NIT final, the preseason NIT final in 1986, it was actually 1985, but the 86 season where Duke played and beat Kansas that season was the game that launched Duke to be the number one team in the country that year. And it launched Duke upon the national stage more than any other game has. Uh, And it's essentially, it's like the first time that the college basketball world really took notice of Coach K and what he was building at Duke. So, so that's a possibility as well from 1986. I mentioned, I, I can't believe we haven't talked more about the 1999 team. Um, the, the, the game I want someone to watch from 1999 was on February 3rd. Duke played Maryland and Cameron. Both teams were ranked in the top 10. This is a really good Maryland team in 1999. Duke won the game by more than 20 points. Like it wasn't even that close. It was over. It, ha- it was over in, within like 10 minutes. But you need to experience the dominance of that 1999 team. If you want to go back, there are numerous games team beats teams by 40 points. That 1999 team was unreal. And I think as a Duke fan, you need to, to see what they were like. That is the Shane Battier breakout game. Yes. Yes, it, it, it is. Well, I had that on my list too. And, and, and I love it for that. But, but I just, you just have to, you have to see what that 99 team what they were able to, I was crazy. Uh, another one on my list, um, December 12th, 2005, the JJ Reddick game against Texas, where he scores 41 points. Sam, that was already on your list. Um, I think that game cemented JJ as the greatest scorer in Duke history. And then it would be easy. Donald, I know you had the gone in 54 seconds. We've talked about the Maryland games. Technically, the last game on my list is the national semifinal versus Maryland, the 22-point comeback. But seeing as you guys already mentioned it, and I want to give Melissa one more, I'm actually going to give her two more. <laughs> uh, I think the 2010 Butler national title game is 
is truly magical. And I can't believe we haven't mentioned it yet. <laughs> um, um, because it's still, it still gives me heart palpitations at the end, even though, I mean, Jason, this is funny for like 10 years, they would play this game on loop at the Duke store. And every single time you got down to the last three seconds, if you were in the store, everyone stopped to watch the shot from Gordon Hayward to make sure it didn't go in. It, keep in mind, ladies and gentlemen, it still has not gone in. But every single time you get to that point, every Duke fan still stops and collects their breath to make sure that that shot doesn't go in. As stressful as the Final Four was this year, us being there, Jason, in, in New Orleans, watching the 2010 National Championship game, like heading into that game, I remember that the, the whole conversation was like, neither of these teams plays very quickly. They're very efficient, but they, they really lock it down on defense. They were, they were sort of both like the Virginia teams under Tony Bennett that would, that would come a few years later. And so the conversation was like, you know, maybe one of these teams gets to 60 and wins this game. Every possession of that game felt so stressful. It wasn't like it was slow, but it was intense. Okay. So I, I mentioned that game. I, I do want to say if you if you've already seen that other national title game, and I wouldn't be surprised by that. The game to watch, Sam. I think you're wrong about the Brian Zubek breakout game. I I do think the Brian Zubek breakout game is the game to watch. But the one to watch is the February 13th, 2010 Duke against Maryland. That's the first game that Brian Zubek was a starter for Duke. First game in his entire career that he started. He goes for 16 points and 17 rebounds. We had no idea. People need to remember, we, no one thought Brian Zubek could, could play basketball at all. He was just this big dude. He could play. He could play like, but, but before that, he was playing like 12, 15 minutes a game. Yeah, and, and getting like four points and maybe five or six rebounds. When, he, uh, when Duke beat Maryland by 21 points, Brian Zubek went for 16 points and 17 rebounds. It was so IO, and, and his dominance on the offensive glass, he had nine offensive rebounds in that game. <laughs> That's just a crazy number of offensive I think, rebounds. Jason, I, I think that was my memory failing me. It was the, the Carolina game is where Lance Thomas got hurt um, prior to that Maryland game. And then the Maryland game was the beginning of the, of the Zubek run. Exactly. Exactly. So in any event, that's, I, I, I think I, I gave way more than five games there because you guys had stolen so many of mine. I had to give backups. Let me, let me give you one more uh, and, and I'll take it back a long time ago. This is, I, I certainly don't remember this game. This is before my, my memory of Duke basketball starts, but I know I've, I've seen clips from this game and I know it was a thriller in a season that ended in some kind of heartbreak for Duke, but is definitely part of the narrative. 1990. I want to take you back to 1990 and I want to take you to the East Regional Final, the Elite Eight game, where Duke beat Connecticut in overtime. Uh, it, was a, it was a thrilling matchup. Of course, it went to overtime. Duke wins by one point, and Christian Leitner has one of his very best games in a Duke uniform. If it's not the 1992 uh, uh, Elite Eight game, it might be this Elite Eight game from 1990. Of course, that season ends with Duke getting blown out by UNLV, the whole story about them coming back the next year. But if you watch that 1990 game, uh, you sort of see the the makings of of Christian Leitner, the greatest player in Duke history. And, and and everyone recall how that game ended. If you don't recall how that game ended, Christian Leitner hits a a, a last second shot for for Duke. It's the launch of Christian Leitner as an absolutely clutch player. 
And and the final one I'm going to give, this is probably more recent. This backs right up to the 10 year uh, window uh, that we were given. Uh, but I, I'm a fan of stealing the soul from a place um, in that place is Chapel Hill. Uh, I'm going to go with the Sub-Zero game. Austin Rivers, the uh, the buzzer beater at Carolina. Um, again, that game, a lot of people say that game is dumb, but I, I, I stress for you to watch those games because you need to experience pain before you experience glory. And that glory is the last like three minutes of that game highlighted by Sub-Zero, Austin Rivers, who, who I know we don't talk a lot about that 2012 team. There's a lot of issues with that 2012 team. But we we can always remember that one. We'll always have Paris, as they say. We will always have Sub-Zero just ripping the soul out of UNC that night. And for the next four years, that game was played on repeat every single day because it was one of the more classic uh, buzzer beaters in, in the history of that rivalry, the greatest rivalry in college basketball. So again, thanks to Melissa for a great question. Um, Melissa, I know you asked for five games. I think we gave you about 18. 47. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you have, you have some homework to do this summer, my dear. Uh, but uh, that's going to wrap it up for us here on this episode of the DBR podcast. Again, we thank Jay Billis, by the way, for joining us a little bit earlier and telling us all about AJ Griffin and what to expect from AJ. Uh, for Donald and Sam, I am Jason. DBR podcast in the books. Here's the Duke band to play us out and take us home.